again, Maxi, let me apologize to you on the record. And, no problem. Um, uh, again, Oksana will be fired for messing up. Uh, what? What the hell is it called? Daylight savings out here? Yeah. You know, in the era of digital phones, it, it it's not even a thing to me. And I've been, dude, Maxie, I've been walking around the house all day, freaking out because every clock that isn't digital in here was showing it was an hour ahead. Okay. You understand this happens twice a year. <laughs> We're never. It's not there. like it's not like a new thing that's just happened. I, it is when you have a, a digital malaise that you live in. I live in a virtu- I live in the uh, metaverse. You gotta be prepared, man. Zuckerberg's letting me in. Now the other thing is Clark works in Arizona, which again okay. is a state that doesn't have it anymore. It's the only state in these uh, in these states united that does not honor uh, daylight savings time because they do their own thing in Arizona. So it's but. It doesn't matter. Why are we talking about this? Who cares? Well, uh, actually, I did have a segue okay, because I do. Th- I do think it is kind of interesting mm-hmm. because it's kind of. I mean, okay, so we're in a we're in the U.S. Where are you right now, Maxi? I'm in Vilnius, Lithuania. Lithuania. Oh, wow. Now, out here, you know, we're a republic, so there there are five different uh, houses basically that are working together mm-hmm. to make this thing work. Fifty. I said five. Now the thing is. The stupid daylight savings thing, you know, what, uh, 49 of the states abide by it, but one don't. And you could, you could argue that that's a system breakdown when we're trying to connect. Now, yeah. Clark trains people in other states, so this is a complicated thing that people didn't consider. And the way that you came onto our radar, and the reason I'm, uh, I'm kind of starstruck talking to you, is I think you've made the most important unglorified zombie apocalypse film I've ever seen with the Gerber syndrome. Dude, I was, I, (laughs) now I'll tell you, I've shown um, a couple people the movie and everybody's like, what the hell is this COVID film you're trying to show me? Like everybody's so burnt out by it. But then I'm like, dude, this was made in 2011. I can't even like, so here's my question. Yeah. What the fuck do you know, Maxie? (laughs) What kind of secret powers? Who who's on the inside here? We're on to you, man. Well, I cannot. I have to say, it didn't feel good, honestly. <laughs> when last year I started seeing and things, as you know, uh, people started talking about COVID in Italy because in Europe it started in Italy, like 100 kilometers away from where I live. Mm-hmm. The epicenter was in Bergamo, which is like two cities away. And to see things that looked a lot like what uh, what we did ten years ago with Gerber syndrome, it didn't really feel good. And I have to add, add this: that the film in Italy is in on Amazon Prime, and I checked it out in like a few months ago. And when I saw that the distributor uh, wrote on the they changed the logline on the Amazon Prime page, they changed before COVID there was Gerber syndrome, which to me was a very distasteful thing. And I wrote them and said, please change it. I don't want, I mean, ours is a piece of fiction. It's, I don't, it's, to me, it seemed very disrespectful and I asked them to change it. And we also considered knowing how easy nowadays it is to spread fake news and to spread something believing that it's real, that we've, I thought about maybe we should make a press release or something saying Gerber syndrome is a fiction film it's not real. So if anyone sees pieces of it taken out of context and uh, used for different purposes, don't believe it. 
but then I thought it might attract the attention on it even more. So we didn't do anything. But yeah, there are a lot of things that were eerily actual. Yeah, that's really interesting. You never know what you put out there on social media, how people are going to take it. Because you could go out there and just be like, hey, this is not like a denier film. We're not trying to make up some weird lore that we're trying to get you to buy. And then people could see that and be like, oh, yeah, it could totally be taken that way. And then that person will turn around and turn it into that. So it's interesting. I was also kind of curious how you thought. Like, so in your film, um, in the Gerber Syndrome, we have a zombie apocalypse that's treated. Oh man, I don't even know how to approach this because I try to imagine seeing your film in 2011. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, I think I might've been like, yeah, it's kind of boring or something where now when the film opens up, it's like, well, I, 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 I mean, I've known you for close to a decade. Yeah. I did not know you in 2011. And uh, in the, in the short amount of time that uh, six years that I've known you yeah. six, seven years, You've you've grown a lot. You're you know you've adapted. You've evolved as a human. <laughs> I can only imagine how much of a shithead you were at twenty. Yeah. Well, I think it's just because it's almost like now now Maxie's other work has he's done a couple of real documentaries, mm-hmm. and I think what mm-hmm. I'm saying by boring is you know what his distribute whoever's distributing his film in Italy, they're trying to make it more sensational. Like oh, before COVID, there was this nightmare. Where I think mm-hmm. a lot of horror fans kind of need that. Where if you came in, you're like, oh, the fucking zombie apocalypse. You're looking for Zack Snyder on Netflix. Yeah. And then you come into the Gerber syndrome and you're like, this is this a real documentary? There's no heist. Yeah. There, <laughs> yeah, there's just no heist in your film, Maxie. No, and mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, where did that level approach? Like, it's a very sober approach of uh, what turned out to be a very true application of... um a government trying to struggle with like its society catching a very contagious disease. Like, do you have a medical background? Uh, no, but I tried to research as much as I could. And I, I spoke extensively with doctors back then. And uh, it well, there wasn't COVID, but uh, Gerber syndrome was born out of the, in 2009, there was this uh, swine flu epidemic or avian flu epidemic. It was a bit mixed. And there was a bit of paranoia around. Uh, There was, I mean, uncomparable to what COVID is doing now, but there were a few, some people who were getting it, some people died. So there was a lot of anxiety around it. So that's what started me into thinking about that. And then I wanted to approach it. I mean, I'm, of course, I'm a a big zombie fan. I I like it. It's uh, many zombie films, Romero's films were very inspirational to me. And meeting him with Gerber Syndrome in a festival was one of the high points of my life. But I didn't want it to be like sold and packaged as a zombie film. I wanted to, yeah, there were elements of it, but I wanted to be as as far as possible from zombie cliches, although some maybe remain. So I spoke to epidemiologists, I spoke to virologists, and I asked them, you know, about all this uh, viral diseases that I read that are in many regards worse than what you see in films. There are film diseases like the like the Japanese and and uh, Japanese encephalitis, which is terrible, or malaria, some kind of forms of malaria. I mean, this doctor described me things that happened that he saw while being a you know a doctor in in Africa in some difficult areas in Africa. 
and he described them, you know, as scenes out of from The Exorcist, little girls that could be hardly contained because they would have some so much strength uh, out of this uh, feverish disease that. I mean, that was hard to believe. So I tried to use all those things and make them as real as possible. Or uh, there is a thing mentioned about Cuba, which was real, that when there was uh, the beginning of AIDS, um, when AIDS started spreading in Cuba, they didn't have enough money or resources to treat it and approach it the way other countries did. So what they did was that to test all the population and everybody that was positive, they put them on an island and fuck off and that's it. And nobody ever saw them again. And it's not much known, but in the medical community, it is known. So I tried to use these uh, real-life horrors and put them in the film. Now, were you saying that George Romero got to see your movie? I don't know if he saw the film, but there was this science fiction festival in Italy, and he was the big guest because they were screening a restored version of Dawn of the Dead. So I was invited with my film. I don't think he came, but... Uh, towards the end of the festival they told us there's going to be a special dinner in a restaurant so I went and I saw him alone at the table with his wife at the back of the restaurant and I was there with my friend the main actor of Gerber Syndrome so I told him let's just go straight and I sit at the table and I was translating the menu in Italian for them (laughs) and you know you, you meet with somebody who was since I was a teenager a kind of a hero for you and you would think you would have so many things to ask and to say. And in the end, I really didn't really know what to say. And I just heard some funny stories that he said, and he was very sweet. And they told us beforehand, don't ask for autographs because he has arthritis, so it's painful for him. But at the end of the evening, he was very kind. He said, oh, no, of course I'm going to. And so I had my copy of Dawn of the Dead. He signed it, and it was a very special moment. Is Dawn of the Dead your favorite of the trilogy? Uh, I'm more attached to Night of the Living Dead because it was the first one I saw and I think it is uh, a very socially relevant film for many reasons but I also, I mean, that and Dawn of the Dead I think of course are very important but also Day of the Dead I think it's a bit underrated but it has a lot of values it's probably the most claustrophobic of all yeah, I, I think Dawn of the Dead is an interesting comparison to the Gerber Syndrome because he was kind of touching on uh, dense urban population and how structures can break down and how people are kind of like the minute you realize that like national security isn't really an option. That's what the zombie apocalypse is in most of horror genre where it's like, mm-hmm. you're left alone, find a gun, shoot them in the head. Right. Like it's a very, I don't know. It's a very romanticized thing here in America. And you know, when you watch the Gerber syndrome, God, I would have loved to known what George Romero thought. Because I can't tell. I keep going back and forth. I can't tell if the Gerber syndrome is a more cynical look at humans and the way, like, I can't tell if there's an underlying theme of this is all an illusion. And at the end of the day, we're going to fight each other for a loaf of bread. Or if it's more of an optimistic thing where it's like, we won't instantly succumb to the zombie apocalypse. And because that's always the thing. One little outbreak and the whole nation is gone. Where Mm -hmm. in your film, it's a slower progression and honestly it could be considered optimistic i don't know what what do you think did you make this film is it a hopeful film the gerber syndrome uh back then no i don't think i was very hopeful back then uh i thought that 
Well, I'm I am very appreciative of your comparison with Romero. Of course, I wouldn't dare to put <laughs> I mean, but anyway, I appreciate it a lot. Uh, I think the great feat that Romero had and that many as far as I know, not many else did was that for him the the true monsters are the humans, not the zombies. And not many others, I think, caught that glimpse that the true horror comes in human society and when it starts functioning as it should and rather than creatures eating each other. Um, well, okay. Now, let me stop you there because one of the arguments I always get in, uh, into with people, because there are a lot of people who are like, dude, society wouldn't collapse. Like, it would look more like Shaun of the Dead where, like, you, you last for two days and then the government shows up and they're like, hey, we're here. Don't trip. Yeah. But I think, you know, what you're talking about, the humans being the real monster, is so many people when they're like, uh, I don't know, playing video games or anything, one of the downfalls in a film is you, you know, you uh, fend off the zombies and you board up the front door again and you come up and your wife is turned into a zombie. And this mm -hmm. is always a downfall for a protagonist or a hero in a film. And so many people when they're watching, it's like, oh, you just put them down. Like, why do people always go like, oh, oh, no. And then they get eaten. And I'm like, well, if you're going to be the person that just shoots your loved one, I think you've lost your humanity completely now. Where your film does a better job articulating like, hey, there's government rules and regulations, but we're going to hide our daughter in our home. And I think this is what's best for her. And it's kind of like, I don't know, we get two sides of that coin in yours. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. Do you think uh, you should just put a bullet in your loved one right away? <laughs> I don't know. You, it's a very difficult question that you're asking me. It takes it would take me long more time to to find a proper answer, and also trying to find an answer in in comparison to what what's going on right now, what has been happening until I mean last year. Uh, I think that very same question happened to several people who might have had, um, you know, like a grandfather or a grandmother who starts showing some kind of disease, and what should you do? Uh, my one of my best friends. Her uh, grandmother died recently, not not out of COVID, but still she survived COVID. But they, I mean, she was taken to the hospital and nobody could see her again. And, you know, you pose yourself those questions. So not only people who die, but also die away from your loved yeah. caring ones. So that same question, should I denounce what happening or should I hide it for the, it's a, it's a tricky question. I don't have an answer to that. I don't know. I, I don't uh, think there is a right answer. Really? No, no, not really. No. Yeah, I, actually, Oksana, didn't that happen to your grandma? She didn't pass away, thankfully. But your mom was in a position where she was in a home. Yeah, there was a terrible miscommunication where I guess she had, they thought she tested positive and they were calling my mother in the middle of the night, like having her prepare final wishes. And, and she just like, it, like completely dumbfounded. Like, where is this all coming from? And I don't know. It was, it was a big mix-up, but um, she's fine now. Yeah, you know, out of the um, blue, they called her. Yeah, in the night, though, they called her in the middle of the night and were just like, hey, uh, you need to start making preparations. And she was like, for what? And they're like, oh, your your mom has COVID and she's going to pass. Oh, also, you can't come in and see her because no. she has COVID. And then it turned out she's fine. Yeah. But it's just like, yeah, what the fuck do we do? Everybody's kind of running around with their heads cut off. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's scary for everyone, too. And uh, it, it's such a mixed bag showing your movie, Maxine. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. I almost have to warn people. Like, hey, this is fiction. 
Like, so, I mean, you're going to, I remember Guillermo del Toro. We saw him at, um, out here at a theater and he was showing, uh, what movie was he showing? Crimson Pig. Uh, Devil's Backbone. Devil's Backbone, not Crimson. Yeah. <laughs> and he and somebody asked like a rude fucking question. Out here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we get a lot of terrible Q and A's. It's a segment we okay. have on here. And Guillermo just answered, you know, when people watch my movie, you don't really learn a lot about me, but you, I learn a lot about you. And uh, I was like, damn, what a powerful statement. So the yeah. Gerber syndrome, people come into <clears throat> it, and whatever they come out with. I end up learning a lot about them. I remember That's true. Um, I showed it to uh, one of our close friends and uh, I, I love to pick her brain about movies. And she, she was like, Oh, I turned it off in the first half hour. Cause I thought this was a COVID denier film. And I'm like, uh, what are you talking about? Yeah. And I'm like, you know, it was made in 2011. And she went, Oh, holy shit. I thought this was made like months ago. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. she's quick to judgment. I know, but it's it's also like how fucking nuts. A decade ago you made this movie that's speaking to this moment so directly. Like I, I threw on your film minutes ago and I was just watching the intro and it's like every time you have like an interview with somebody on the street who's talking about, yeah, I tell all my friends, you always got to wash your hands. And man, does that take me back to 2019. Yeah. Well, those interviews are real. I mean, those interviews, we were asking different kinds of questions, but all those interviews are not actors that that that's all real and about what you're saying about the kind of uh, debates that Gerber syndrome would raise now uh yes i think it could be seen as a at least like a vaccine denier film because yeah. at the end there is all this debate and in the end the girl shows up with all these uh, things and i mean i'm not and i mean i'm vaccinated and i don't know how you guys feel but i think i'm pretty grateful that I had this chance to to do it contrary to many other people in the world who don't have the chance to to have this kind of protection but other than that uh the film yeah does have this back then my I did have some uh, how to say um I didn't feel great about the medical community because the the two elements that pushed me to create Gerber syndrome one was the the thing of the swine flu and the other was an experience that my mother around that time had uh, breast cancer and she's recovered by now she's fine but uh, she had some experiences with the medical uh, institutions that were to me very hard to digest like after the operation she had to start her uh, chemotherapy procedures and uh, she was going into this uh, very prestigious hospital institution in Milan, which is the city next to where we live. It's the best in Italy that you can get. And at a certain point, her doctor told her, listen, there is this experimental treatment that uh, could has been showing some good signs, good results. And um, But... There is a percentage of people who it's still in a treatment, uh, how to say, experimental stage. So some people died, some people got heart problems, some people have got this problem, this problem. So it's a gamble, but you can try it. And so she considered, she spoke with her own doctor and she thought, no, I'd rather do the, the traditional one, which is more uh, understood. And so I don't risk. And so they told her, well, fair enough but then you have to do it somewhere else. So basically they kicked her out of the hospital, Damn. even though she, and uh, her own insurance, because partially it was covered by, you know, health, state health institution. And her own in- insurance said uh, for the second part of the operation, uh, 
that they couldn't cover it because it was considered something aesthetical, as if she was doing her breasts when it was a breast cancer thing. So yeah. these kind of things, and I kept the, I kept the papers of this uh, experimental treatment thing, which was quite horrendous. I mean, it was something that I understand you need to test it, but it should be willing. It should be voluntary. You cannot be like a blackmail. Either you do it or you do it in a worse space to do it. So I, I had these feelings that were making me feel a bit bad about the medical institutions, but it was 10 years ago. It was different today. Things are a bit different. Well, I mean, like all institutions, they do good and they do bad. Like uh, whether it be the police department, which you have a great like law enforcement angle to your movie or even the medical one. I mean, people love Pfizer right now because of the vaccine. But in Mm -hmm. 2019, they paid out the biggest lawsuit ever because of the opioid stuff they had. Yeah. And at the end of the day, they are a company like for profit. So it's like it's just I get I get uh, irritated when people are very worshipful they're worshipful Mm -hmm. of like these companies. And I'm like, at the end of the day, you got to remember it is a company. They're making money. Yeah. So just be, I don't know. I I think through this whole thing, we got to learn, like, you just got to be friends with people, talk to people, interact. Like once you start getting agoraphobic and weird and uh, you live on the internet, I mean, you start to turn into it. You're looking in the abyss. It's coming back at you. Absolutely. I don't know how it is now in the States, but in Italy, there are lots of protests about all of these anti-vaxxers and anti-green pass people, people that are comparing it to the Holocaust or to the apartheid. I mean, it is the discourse is turning absolutely toxic and ugly. And and another side uh, that, in my opinion, has changed drastically since we did Gerber syndrome is the whole relation to news and to what is real and what is fake. Mm-hmm. I, today, nowadays, I don't know if I would do a mockumentary again because I, it's almost seems something irresponsible to do. Back then, it was still at the beginning. I think, I don't remember if the first paranormal activity just came out or came out shortly after, but it was still quite new. And now it's, it feels a very different world. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, one, uh, we run a found footage film festival, so I hate to hear that any talented director would not want to make another appropriate in-world camera film. But again, have you ever seen Ghost Watch? No. Remind me, which one is it? Ghost Watch was a uh, Halloween event that the BBC broadcasted, and it was supposed to be a live broadcast from the most haunted house in uh, London, where mm-hmm. I can't remember what was located. And 94? Was it 94? 92. 92. And they pre recorded it and they added, uh, you know, they just, they basically faked it. And Leslie Manning, who is a talented and serious director, she said, one, it's about ghosts and it put ghost in the name. So I'm kind of already like, like, it's not very War of the Worlds in that way. And she's trying to like, I was trying to be like as upfront as I could, but also at the same time, I wanted people to realize like the BBC was very, uh, they were held in high regard and she wanted to say, you know, you can't just trust everything you see, like, like use your own um, rationale and do a little bit of research. And then maybe you won't believe that your microwave is turning on and off because a ghost came through your TV. So, I mean, honestly, God, it's so divided out here in America right now. But I think, I mean, I'm an optimist at the end of the day. I can't speak for Mm -hmm. Clark, but 
I think that this kind of stuff, we get beat down with it until we become skeptical and cynical. And then we just learn to kind of like look at things and be like, eh, I don't know. I mean, our media right now is so biased. I like, I'm not sure how it is where you are, but it's like there's Fox News and then there's everything else. And you you pretty much fall in line with your favorite brand. And that's your that's kind of your reality that you're choosing to be in. So I just kind of reject it all. I don't or, know if or I'm you make your it. own news. Yeah, or you, or you make your own news. There you go. People mm-hmm. are into that these days. Yeah, so I don't know. You know, with mockumentary, I think challenging people and getting them used to kind of being fooled by the format, it could be healthy. It's kind of like you're building an immune system to, uh, I don't know, just being a passive believer in everything you see. It could be, yeah, actually. Mm. If it is approached in the right way and it's not done with the purpose of, uh, I mean, if it's done with the wrong intentions, it can be damaging. Uh, but if it's done with a good intention, maybe with the intention of making fun, I mean, I don't, I feel there is a lot of lack of humor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Things that are happening now, I mean, to me, humor is an important thing. And I think that humor was a, uh, essential element into mockumentaries uh, for a long time, maybe more mockumentaries than found footages, which to me are, I don't know, um, to me are quite quite different, mockumentaries and found footage. But in the mockumentaries, films like uh, the, the fake one about the moon landing filmed by, by, by Kubrick, to me it's uh, pure, pure fun and it's great fun. There is a very good one called Death of a President about the murder of... Uh, of uh, George W. Bush, which is done like a, like a CNN documentary, but it's not. It's a very good film. Uh, but there are several which have humor and make you think, makes you think about stuff. I've never seen Death of a President. Uh, it's very cool. It came out, I think, around 2007 or 2008. It might be Australian director or Australian and American. I, I don't think it's purely American. And it's a whole thing about the assassination of George W. Bush. Killed as if, as, as like Kennedy was killed. Okay. Now a film like that could be like right now, that would be a very divisive film. Cause I'm sure uh, a yeah. lot of Republicans would take that as like, Oh, people are coming after me. And you know, film is a very liberal industry. It would be seen as a death threat. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. Do you think, how was it received? That was in 2013? I have no idea. No, no, no. But oh, before no, no. that. Yeah, it was before. I'm looking at the dirty. 2008, because it was before, I think it was before Obama became president. So so it must have been around then. Yeah, I'm sure. Maybe 2007. Have you seen it before, Clark? No, no? but I know this uh, cover. <laughs> oh, it's on that your favorite shirt. <laughs> What? I don't know. <laughs> so I want to circle back. So Maxi, you you essentially created a disease. So we were talking about um, you know, researching a lot and you know, uh, you know, uh swine flu, avian flu, those things. So, you know, was it sort of a pick and choose from from everything? And also, you know, what was sort of your creative process on that of like I have an opportunity to create a disease. So did you want it to be, you know, as medically accurate as possible? Were you looking for, you know, some, you know, creative infusion there? What was sort of your your thought process when you're sort of, you know, trying to figure out what what this is that's, you know, causing so, so much, you know, turmoil? I would say it was a bit pick and choose. I would 
uh, I mean, I can tell you a bit about how the whole thing began. Um, it began with my best friend and the girl who plays the redhead girl in the film, who's an actress, and a friend of us who does special effects. And one afternoon, we thought, ah, yeah, I have this idea. So we made a little short film. Uh, which kind of reassumes the storyline of the bitten girl who gets worse and worse and worse. And we did it in my my bedroom with my two friends. It was like, uh, we are roommates. She came back home, she was attacked, and we document her feeling worse and worse and worse. Done in the same, very same realistic style. And uh, then I showed it to the producer I used to work back then, who liked it a lot. And uh, who said, okay, maybe I can, and he financed it in the whole film itself, which was extremely cheap. The whole film costed 30,000 euros. So you could say around $35,000 more or less. Uh, so I had to be very creative with the money we had. And so that dictated a lot of choices. What can we do without spending money that we don't have? Because we didn't get any funding from anywhere. It was just him financing. Uh, so I started reading. I spoke, there was this friend of my mother who was working in the infectious disease hospital. I read some Wikipedia stuff myself because I, I, I appreciate the question if I have a medical background, but I don't. So I, <laughs> I could just understand Wikipedia, not, not much more than that. Of course, the zombie kind of like thing was in the back of my mind. Uh, I was looking for diseases that would basically fuck your brain and that you would be you could your body could move more or less all right but your your consciousness would be gone mm -hmm. and i found stuff that would be in that area so like uh, malaria encephalitis uh, a couple of other diseases that are developed like a fever and hit the nervous system so then i confronted this doctor that i was speaking with and trying to get what I needed from them. So I would say, would this be realistic? And I would say, yeah, this would be realistic. Would this be not realistic? And then there would be a bit of leeway so that not everything is realistic, but I would find my way through to make something that would be nice. Like, so you, you um, wanted to ground everything in, in realism to a certain extent, right? As much as possible, yeah. Like some things, I guess, were very subtle and probably nobody noticed, but to me were important. Like there is a little scene in which the the doctor makes a test on the on the young girl and she lifts her head i don't know if you remember and uh, it's she she bends her knees a little and that's telltale for, for him and that's a real sign it's a real test that you do i forgot the name it's like kreuzberg maneuver or something and when you do that it means that there is a lesion to the nervous central system and it's a sign that proves that you have uh, encephalitis i think Russell, so I do that right after this show. What? Make sure I don't have encephalitis. <laughs> I'm just, I'm imagining this screening in a theater and then like a doctor's in there and he's just like, oh shit, it checks out. Like, have, has anybody ever reached out to you and been like, dude, what? The very first screening we had, it was in Italy in a small town in a, in a festival. And at the end of the screening, a guy stands up at the beginning of the Q&A and he says, I am a doctor. I am whatever, a film critic, and he wasn't a nice guy. And he said, <laughs> I was watching this film and I thought for a while it was a, a documentary. Then I thought it was a horror film. Then I thought it was a drama. And then I realized it's just nothing because for him, it was neither of these things. And I don't remember what I answered to him, but yeah, no, I never had somebody coming 
to me. But recently I got a few messages from people that watched the film after COVID saying how impressed they were. But no, doctors who said that it was very accurate, that that you are the first one. So Dude, he stood up and said, I'm a doctor and a critic. Yeah. What a something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Beat me to it. He probably moved out here to the Bay Area right after. And he's been at every goddamn q and I've ever been. So you have very nasty, nasty audiences. Well, we get a lot of like, well, oh, my God. Uh, we saw Takashi Miike. Mm-hmm. He came out mm-hmm. and he did a Halloween screening. And I remember the first person that stood up said, hello, I'm a uh, linguist and I've been studying Japanese for. And it's then they did everything in Japanese, too. And it, it's like it was like a. 10 minute diatribe of bullshit. It's like, before I get to my question, let me give you my resume. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's, it's Takashi Mika. He never comes to the US. Also, these people are never very flattering. Well, you had one for um the lobster, right? Didn't somebody come up and be like, what was up with the goat? Oh, yeah. So as as a part of the SF Film Festival, Yorgos Lanthimos uh came and wow. uh, was premiering the lobster, and, and I was fortunate enough to be there. And someone in the balcony, I never saw her because she was up in the balcony, <laughs> had like a five-minute question. And at the end of it, Yorgo said, was that a question? What? I don't know what to say. And then we moved on to the next person. <laughs> it's like, yeah, just, yeah, people just, you know, they, they get excited. There's nervous energy. I get it. But it's also, um, there's always an underlying sense of pretension and whatever's being said from the audience, well, it's it's fun when it happens. It's uh, and it's it the only the thing that sucks is that usually the great comeback comes to you two hours later. I ah, fuck, I should have said that. Yeah, it never comes straight away. Sure. That's a shame. Well, I mean, honestly, you, you were talking about meeting George Romero and being like, "What the fuck do I tell him?" And mm-hmm. I honestly, I think I we I kind of got into doing all this, like writing about film and doing a podcast. So I had a reason because half mm-hmm. the time I want to go up to people and be like, hey, I'm a huge fan. Um, I hope I didn't ruin your day by telling you goodbye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how? That's all for me. I don't think that does anything for them. So, you know, but now we get to pretend like we're some sort of a force or like we're, we have some hot takes over here. And, and now we get to demand an hour of your time. Where it's uh, two hours, thanks, Roxana. <laughs> Which again, she will be fired. And Maxi, I mean, <clears throat> we we do a found footage film fest or in world camera with faux documentary because we love the medium. I think it's a really great way to have an authentic person come through and film, which is mostly you know fictional narrative. Mm-hmm. And meeting people like you are always so they're so interesting because now Thank you you. Have, you've made a zombie film, a faux documentary, but your other work is like pretty serious documentary work. Like I was looking through your um, IMDb and I came across when we talk about KGB. Mm-hmm. Now I don't think I, I was taken aback because I'm just scrolling through here and I'm like, wow, I wonder what this is about. And so I go to the storyline now, let me just read this from IMDb. Let, Clark, let me know if you've ever heard anybody write something like this. Here we go. So the storyline of when we talk about KGB. I'm not trying to create a political historical portrait of Soviet Lithuania because the microclimate of the last decade of the Soviet Union is too electrified with misleading tension. What I believe is that by presenting an authentic and individual experience, one can see a cross-section of that time that doesn't push any kind of conclusion because there cannot be any conclusion under these circumstances. And of course you wrote that Maxi. 
And I, I don't remember saying it, but it yeah, sounds good. The, the, pros, the pros and the structure of that's very similar to my <laughs> eHarmony profile. <laughs> no, I, so it's quoted to you at least. Whoever put that in there, they're quoting you. And I, I just, I thought it was very striking and like self-aware. And for a documentary to kind of ease in your approach and be like, hey, watch the documentary and uh, draw your own conclusion and don't be angered by anything you see because I, I have no real agenda. I thought that was really interesting. And now I'm kind of a bum that you didn't just write it and put it up there. Well, probably I did again. It was a few <laughs> years ago, but uh, yeah, I didn't because um, I started, I went and moved to real documentaries afterwards. Uh, I, I went, I came to Vilnius where I'm right now uh, to present Gerber syndrome. So it was 2012. Uh, it was the Venus Film Festival. They invited me. And there I met this uh, this woman who was a director and was working for the festival. And then a few years later became my wife. And we created, we started creating, working on this film about KGB together. Uh, she She was working for the festival and she invited, it was me and my best friend. We were guests and they said, oh, maybe you want to go visit this place. And it was the former uh, KGB prison and I, it was a very shocking experience to me and I thought wow I want to make a film about this so I came back to Italy I spoke to the producer of Gerber Syndrome and he said maybe you could do a documentary first because to make a, a you know costume film set in the 70s in Soviet Union sounds very expensive so it's not really so I came back to Virginia and we started working on it and then one thing led to another and we made this and now we just finished our second a real documentary and working again on fiction. So I'm moving again to fiction back as a director. It's going to be the next project. But yeah, there was 10 years time of real documentaries that look a bit like fiction films, the way they're done, whereas before it was a fiction film that looked like a documentary. So it was a mix. Can you talk a little bit about your new project? Yeah, well, I, it, I, I'm back in the... Uh, disease the domain oh, so be, before before <laughs> before covid so this was 2018 i started thinking about a film about the spanish flu in pandemic because i was reading some books about it it's something that you know i would um, talk about it with like my grandmother or my her sister my grandaunt and and they said yes of every, it seems like something that everybody knew about but there are no films about it. There are no books, barely books about it, except historian books. And it was, when you read a bit about it, it was literally the biggest catastrophe of recorded human history. It was like millions and millions and millions of deaths. And uh, it was so surprising to me. How come nobody ever did a film about it, except maybe a crappy TV show done in England or something? <laughs> and uh, so I started putting some bits and pieces together. And my idea was to have uh, kids, because you know I wanted to make a film about how would kids survive on their own in the forest. And at the same time, something about the Spanish flu pandemic. So I added things that these kids have to go live in the forest because of the pandemic, because their mother got it and tells them, close herself in their bedroom and says, I want you to survive, so go in the forest and this teenage girl like 12 years old girl has to take care of her own brother and survive in the forest and to do so because the reality is too hard for her to accept for the little boy to accept that mom is gonna die 
Everybody around us is dying. Our father is a doctor working God knows where. So she makes up a little story, a fairy tale of a little creature that jumps on you and sucks your energy. And it's started as a metaphor of what the virus would do to you. And she has to live up to this metaphor. And, uh, but then the metaphor becomes slowly real for her. And well, then it's a whole thing about prejudice and about well, it's plenty of stuff anyway. And so I then last year I started working the screenplay with Virginia, with, with my wife, and it developed a lot. And now we are in development stage. It's going to be co-produced with, between Italy, Lithuania, and Scotland. And hopefully in two years, we're going to make it. Man, you make fun films. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm like, wait, how do you counterbalance, uh, counterbalance all this in your real life? Are you like a big comedy fan or anything? Yeah, humor. It's uh, humor. It's an important part of my life. Uh, some comedians, yeah, I, I love to collect jokes. Uh, I, I like to tell jokes when the audience is right. And uh, yeah, I, I would say I'm, I'm seen as a fun guy, I would say. Okay, because I think it takes a like very well-balanced person to like really dive deep into these like potentially nonfiction like narratives and like live mm -hmm. there and really do do the the justice that it takes to to make a film that you know 10 years later can almost practically come true otherwise you're going to end up like a doctor critic oh my god <laughs> oh yeah i might i yeah. might he just doesn't understand actually in in his film the doctor that was gone he went out to go review a movie what if john lovitz was a doctor <laughs> Yeah. The critic was a doctor. That's it. So so now well, I still prefer to have a QA, a guy who says I'm a critic and a doctor, than to go to a hospital with a big wound and the guy says, Yeah, I'm a critic, I'm a film critic, <laughs> but I'm gonna treat your wound. That that would be worse. Was Patch Adams? Was that does that <laughs> yeah. count? Yeah, 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 Patch Adams, sure. He's a yeah. doctor and a clown. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would feel great if that person was administering a vaccine to me, came over there and honked his nose before doing it. Yeah. But now, God, Maxie, I hope you don't abandon in-world camera narrative because I'm I'm listening to you and I'm like, you're such an intelligent dude. And then, you know, part of me is like, is that the bed from your movie? Was the Gerber syndrome? Did you shoot that in that room at all? No, no, no. That, that was shot in Italy. OK, that headboard looked a lot like where. Uh, yeah, does it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually. I didn't think about it. I was like, oh, look at that. Yeah. Now. So your what is your new film going to be called? Because usually IMDb will predict the future and talk about four projects that you've mentioned to one person once. But on okay. here, the last thing we have is I'll Stand By You, which I'd also like to talk to you about. I'll Stand By You, it's the film that we released. Uh, well, it came out in cinemas here in Lithuania uh, two days ago, and we are touring cinemas to present it. We, Virgin and I worked on it on the path for the past five years. And that's a real documentary about suicide prevention because, uh, well, Lithuania, now a little less, but Lithuania used to be the country with the highest suicide rate in the world. In Europe, for sure, and in the world, sometimes it's second, sometimes it's third, but it's a very high suicide rate for a number of reasons. And uh, we, after we did, shortly after we finished the KGB film, uh, a producer here pro approached Virginia and said, would you be interested to do a film about suicide? And our both reaction was, oh, not really. It's a very heavy topic. And 
But then they told us about this place, uh, which is a small town, which has the highest suicide rate in Lithuania. It's like a 10,000 people town. And they had a very high suicide rate. And they said there is this woman, uh, a psychologist, who created a system, a grassroots system, together with a policewoman. And uh, it seems to work. And they created this movement and they reduced suicide rate by 70%. So we lived with them, we lived, uh, so to speak. I mean, we would visit them every couple of months to film for four years to show the progress that they did. And I have to say, they asked us, how was it to, to do this film? Was it hard? But it was a pleasure because these people are so, so much fun and so bright and so full of life. And the film for us is like that. It's a bright film. And when we show it to people, the common answer is I was expecting something heavy. I was prepared to something that's going to make me depressed. And instead, I'm full of life and I want to I want to help. So that's a great compliment for us. And uh, it's a film I'm very proud of. We This time I was also cinematographer and co-producer. And at we're going to show it in Italy in January and then some other countries, but it was a great ride and I'm very proud of this film too. Now, did their suicide rate go up during um, lockdowns and COVID? Uh, I think it's too soon to the, to make it because usually these rates, they can they have to be calculated. So maybe next year we will know. Uh, but yeah, probably, yeah. I mean, it, it has been going up in many countries regardlessly yeah. in Italy, a lot in France, in Germany, in the States. And, uh, as far as I know, the, the set, the population segment who's doing it the most, it's 20 to 30 years old guys and girls, because it, uh, of course the lockdown hits them in the moment in which they are mostly socializing and developing. And so that, that was very sad in Lithuania, probably too. Yeah, death of despair. I, I don't know if there's anything worse than that. And I, I'm I'm really curious. So a police officer and a social worker came together? A uh, psychologist, yeah. And a psychologist? What were they doing exactly? They walk into a bar? Okay. <laughs> Sounds a bit like that. Uh, well, it was very simple, basically, because uh, the what made the difference, because there have been several attempts to tackle the problem. Uh, but usually the thing would be people from the capital city that come to the province and try to solve their problems. So it would be, you know, the big minds, the big doctors who come and tell people how oh, you should do this and that. And that never worked. Instead, this time they were locals. So she's a psychologist that worked there. And she said, this is where I live. This is where my kids grew up. So very simply, the system was make an arrangement with the local police and police have, because it's a very rural area. So you have people that live very isolated and mostly there are old people. So what police does is there's, uh, they have an officer that goes to isolated houses to visit them. Officially, they go to check that they're safe. Do you have electricity? Do your doors locks all right? Does anybody bother you and stuff like that? But in reality, they would also check how are you doing? How is your mood? Do you have somebody to talk to? Are you depressed or anything? When they would see somebody that doesn't look all right, they call the center and they, they, they the center, which is the psychologist. If it's somebody who's a bit under the weather, but all right, they, they have volunteers that every day they make a phone call and they just call and chat. 
so that people have a connection. Otherwise, when somebody really is uh, feeling bad and talking about suicide, they would have uh, they would have free consultation with the psychologist right away. And I can tell that we we would follow this policewoman, so we would I would go and film with her visiting these people. And uh, one of the times it was January, like imagine snowy rural area, minus twenty, and it's a place that. It looks a lot like the States. When I look at the film, the, the, the places looks could be Kansas, could be Iowa. Nature is very similar. So we go to this house where there is this old man. He looks 95, but he's like 60. And he lives in this house, which is real dark. Imagine, I mean, if you check the trailer of the film, you can find it. You can see some shots. Real darkness, really pitch black place. And this guy has been living there alone for 25 years in the middle of nowhere. He cannot walk. He's uh, almost handicapped and everything. And he goes on talking for 20 minutes about how he's going to kill himself mm-hmm. as a joke, you know, smiling. And he says, I'm going to, I can do it like this. I can do it like that. I can burn my house down and just hang in the barn. And this was the first meeting. We met another three times. And at the third time, he wanted to be filmed. He, he, he invited, there was the, he created a relationship with this uh, eight-year-old volunteer woman. They became friends. He was playing cards with his neighbor. I mean, I saw a change, a radical change, and we filmed it in the course of one year, one and a half years. And I heard that recently he asked this old uh, lady volunteer to marry him. She said no, but still they remain friends. And uh, so I have to say that to witness their serial life experiences is absolutely was absolutely amazing. Now, did you edit the film too? No, uh, no, no. The, we had a we had an editor this time. We Virginia and I edited the previous film about KGB, but this time no, we had an Italian editor doing it. What's that like? Like, it sounds like you took like a cinema verte approach and you had handheld mm-hmm. cameras and you're, you're really capturing like, you know, the best part of these movies are like privileged moments that you could never stage and you catch real emotion. And then how, how much footage did you have at the end of your shoot? Not a lot, maybe 60 hours, which is not immense for a documentary. Now, how were we talking a feature, right? So how long yeah. is the end product? The, the end product, it's 74 minutes. I mean, you whittle down 60 hours into 74 and you hand it out to somebody. Like, what kind of communication do you have with an editor? Like, are you touching base at all or do you just? Uh, well, I have to give a lot of, in this case, I think a lot of the work was done beforehand. Uh, the screenplay was written by my wife, by Virginia. And she did an amazing job. And if we didn't have... 500 hours of footage is also because she had very clear idea of what we needed. So beforehand, we could, she would uh, script it down as much as possible because, of course, at a certain extent, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And uh, so that we would go there knowing pretty much what we needed. And when the editor came in, there was already kind of a storyline on paper that she already did, and she did an amazing job. And then the, with the, the editor, she composed it, and there was a first draft, and then a second draft, and then we had a, an external consultant that came in with fresh eyes and just saw the editing, and she kind of said, 
this should move here, this should move here, this can, and you know, it, it's an amazing work that they do. She's a very, uh, she's a uh, editing consultant and you know, it's just somebody that comes out and knows exactly how to move the pieces so that it works fine. And in the end, the end result works fine. I mean, we are very satisfied by it. Wow, that's incredible. Scripting out like a documentary like that. Like we've talked to so many filmmakers, a lot of whom, you know, make like one mockumentary film like yourself. And then we get them on here and we gush about their horror movie. Yet they're making mm -hmm. films about like gun control or alcoholism. And okay. actually, I'm curious, what did your wife think of the Gerber syndrome? Did you know her prior to making her or did you meet her after? No, I met her. Um, no, no, I didn't know her before. I came to here to present Gerber syndrome. Yeah. Um, I think that the first time she was okay with it, like not wow, but yeah, yeah. it was okay. Uh, maybe we watched it again some other times a few years later and her opinion seemed to be improved. Okay. She didn't start judging you after watching it the first time? No, no, no. I wouldn't say no. Good. Because <laughs> I could see that going weird. Like, what the hell? Like, you're making... No. Like... How much, how much footage did you have for the Gerber syndrome at the end of that shoot? Oh, very little. The Gerber syndrome was shot in 12 days. So very wow. little. Damn. I mean, I, so clearly making that film, I knew you, you probably had to have a storyboard or a script, but everybody feels so candid and natural throughout it. Like there was you, no script. Okay. There was no script. I mean, there was a script of scenes, but for example, the main actor, Luigi, the guy who takes the zombies around, He's not an actor. He never acted before. We were uh, class. I mean, we were together in class in in elementary school, and but he was he's like that. He's a very brazen <laughs> guy, uh, very you know very bold and very yeah. arrogant at times, and he seemed like the perfect character to do that. So, at the time, what would be was that okay, Luigi, in this scene, you do this, you do this, and you do this. Okay, fine. And he would go and do it. Whenever and it, whenever we would do more than two or three takes, he would start imitating himself and he would start acting and you could tell he's acting. So it didn't work. So the key with him was to keep it fresh all the time and eventually improvise something new. Whereas the actors who plays the girl or the parents or the doctor, they were professional actors. And we did some rehearsals beforehand, not many, but a few rehearsals. And uh, but they didn't have scripted lines again. It was uh, the dialogue was mostly improvised. Good move. Uh, we watch a lot of found footage in mockumentary, and you can always tell when the line is pre-written and people are mm -hmm. delivering a line. Man, you really lose some authenticity there. And I was shocked because your film is it's multimedia. You're jumping around a lot, and everything feels on the same plane as just natural and real like um the doctor in the beginning does he have any medical background uh you mean the the main actor the doctor yeah, yeah. that falls for the story no not at all like how do you deliver lines confidently like that about like he's a he's a very good actor i have to he's say good. he's an excellent yeah. actor yeah but i mean okay you can be a great actor but it's in no world is uh i'm trying to think of a in my head i was thinking Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm -hmm. and I'm like, these are great actors. I'm trying to Wait, I speak for yourself. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Stallone. I dream to make an observational documentary about him and his life. It's my lifetime dream. 
no way. Yeah, see, if I he should ever, you. if he should ever be listening to this podcast, Mr. Stallone, please, I, I just <laughs> wait for a chance to 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 film you in your life and just he seems like a great guy. Right. See, Maxi, this is incredible. You bring this up because <laughs> yesterday Russell and I got into a knockdown drag out argument about right. who's better, Stallone or Schwarzenegger. And I'm team Stallone all the way. Well, as an, I mean, I like both, but as an actor, as a writer, as a director, I mean, it's, Can't it's, touch it. it's two different things. I completely agree with that. Now he's a director and he's smart. He's probably getting at what I was arguing was a negative with Stallone. I was arguing that Arnold comes off a little dumber. You know, I'm a fan of working out. I, I got his encyclopedia. I like all the weird stuff. Arnold was a governor. I know, but he's also kind of a dummy. And I feel like if he you can play a dummy, if, if he's no dumb. No, I think he's a little bit of a dummy. And I, I love him for it because I think he comes across as authentic, which I mean, mm -hmm. he, again, he was a politician at one point, which just doesn't work out where I feel like Stallone. If you're going to make a investigative documentary about somebody, that dude's probably got skeletons in that closet. And he's smart. I think so. Mm. Well, so does Stallone. Stallone's got secret children. No, no, I'm saying I Stallone mean, uh, does. I mean, Schwarzenegger's got secret children. Um, I mean, I, you're probably About right. the skeletons in the closet, I would put more money on, on Schwarzenegger than Stallone. Stallone, for somehow, he seemed, he seems a bit more genuine to me, Stalin Schwarzenegger. I mean, the fact that he had all that political career, I mean, to reach those levels, I think that you must have a few skeletons. But maybe did, I'm did, you ever, did you ever see after the uh, Capitol riot uh, when yeah. Stallone or Arnold made that video and he had the Conan sword? That was a good video. That's yeah, a, that's yeah, a dummy. That dude, I mean, the fire in the water, the water in the fire. There's no <laughs> self awareness there. And I'll tell There's you. There's no self-awareness with Stallone either. I, I'm a... Oh, man. I don't know. These two have been the most famous people for 40 <laughs> years. Now, now, if you could get Stallone and you were going to follow mm -hmm. him around, what would you be hoping to capture? Like, would you just want access to his home and see what he does day to day? Or would you be more interested in, like, his creative process? Measure how tall he is? I'd like to know that. Um... That's a good question. I think I would be more interested into seeing the the everyday life of a character that you know has been, as you said, not only the most one of the most famous people on earth, but a modern time, well, a modern time hero, definitely by all means. I mean, somebody that kids would look up at. To I want to become like Rocky or I want to become like Rambo when I grow up. So to have a chance to see his uh, everyday life, maybe there is nothing interesting. Maybe he's just yeah. a dude who does his stuff, probably. Yeah. But um, there is a very nice documentary called The Queen of Versailles, which is about this, uh, the, this, the wife of this very rich guy. And it follows uh, a track of how they become very rich and they're very rich. I don't remember out of what. And they're building this huge palace, it, which should imitate Versailles. But by then, the 2008 economical crisis happens and they lose all their money. So you see how these billionaires, they get down to the point of selling their, their clothes. And to me, that was a beautiful, I mean, terrible for them. And then in the end, they pick up again. So it was a very interesting arch and very intimate and very close. And that kind of intimacy interests me. Yeah, you kind of strip away that like faux reality 
that we're given through mm. TV and film. Yeah. I I don't know. I I just think with Stallone, it would it might be kind of depressing too. Maybe. Right? I mean, there are definitely some <laughs> what's wrong with that? But the depressing, it's fine. I mean, yeah, it's something to work with. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all a part. It's, it's all a part of the flavor profile, man. Get a little bit of that bitterness in there, you know. It's good. Well, I mean, I'd love it. I just Maxie, I I'm trying to figure out what kind of carrot I could offer you to keep you in the fiction world. I um, I, oh, I, but I, I mean, the 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 Spanish flu influenza. That's 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 fiction. That's that's going to happen. That's the big yeah. that's big thing coming. I know. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm like, I don't know my stance on that film yet. I'm worried you're going to make me sad with it. But then again, I can't, I can't tell. I feel like you're an optimist, but your, your, your work just hits so hard. That's why I was curious about I'll Stand By You, because that did look like just a purely optimistic film, despite the like subject matter. It is. It is a very optimistic film. I mean, if you're interested, I can send you if you want to watch it. Then. Oh, please. I was just going to ask if um, uh, when we talk about KGB or I'll Stand By You is even available in America. Not yet. I mean, uh, I'll Stand By You, it's still quite new. So it was still starting to show it in festivals. But I can I can share, I can send you if you want privately um, oh, please for, your, for your eyes only. And KGB, no, I don't think it's available in the States. We screened it in the States. It was in full frame, the festival, but uh, no, I don't think it's available uh, as far as I know. Yeah, we need more of your work out here. Even the um, okay. the Gerber syndrome is not available out here at all. I think we were able to find a DVD. Um, yeah, the DVD, I think it is the Vanguard, I think it's called the distributor in the States. But yeah, it's it's a bit sad. I think it could have been just released more widely, I think. Yeah, I wonder though, because now if people are going to watch it, they may, I mean, we know how happy Twitter can be. I could just oh, imagine cool. people on both sides of that very divided space, like putting that film on a pedestal and just manipulating it for whatever they wanted. Yeah. I mean, financially, it'd probably be pretty good. Actually, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much money you still make out of films anymore. Well, I can tell you, out of Gerber Syndrome, I made the beauty of 175 euros. All right. Oh, my God. Yeah. Do you have, do you have like a merch store or anything for it? Because I bought the film. I'm, I'm tempted to be like, I'll pay you. I'll send it to you. Sign it for me or something. Uh, but it's not about that. The film is the film is around. I mean, uh, it is digitally available in like forty five countries. Uh, it 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 is has been spread. It's not in Italy. It was sold in DVDs and everywhere. It's just I'm not gonna get into the yeah. deals. Everything just it was it was it wasn't a very good deal. Well, I mean, if you would have held on to that film for a decade, <laughs> it'd be like when the pandemic actually hits, just unleash that monster. But now watching you. I have a question. You got a beautiful cover on that DVD. Is, is yeah, that your is profile? Cool. No, it's the okay. sound designer. It's the sound designer. Oh, me and Oksana were talking about that off air and she swore it was you. And then I just caught a glimpse of you turning. I'm like, damn, maybe it was. No, it was, uh, well, thank you. He's a handsome guy. So I take the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I love the Gerber syndrome and, um, I, oh, I can tell you a little detail, a fun thing, which was uh, very, and it's off the film. So when we did 
that little, uh, let's call it teaser, you know, this little short film that was before the film that convinced the producer to do it. Uh, I showed it to this guy who's a, who's a friend and who did the sound design of the film. And he said, oh, that's, that's interesting. That Before we did the film, I said, that's interesting. Maybe we could do something with it. So he, back then, was teaching sound design. Uh, there is a, uh, in, like a technical university in Turin, and they have a, a faculty, a course, course studies thing about cinema. So what they did was that he created two, two versions of, the, of this short film. In one version, he just kept the, you know, the original soundtrack that I created, just recording it as it was. And in the other one, he uh, filled it with a lot of uh, subliminal noises and sounds, which were very subtle. Some were ultrasounds, some were ultra bass, I don't know, ultra low sounds. So some are noises and sounds that you barely cannot cap. Your ear cannot cap it, but you perceive it somehow. It's some either below or be beyond at the range of what our ear can understand. Um, one of his students in this faculty was doing a whole uh, thesis about statistics connected to cinema and how statistics can be used for, for cinema purposes. So they took uh, two groups of students from the university, uh, like 30 people and 30 people, and to them they showed these two different versions and they made a questionnaire for the both of them. Questions that were, uh, now I don't remember all of them, but they were very psychological questions like question was how do you think is the weather outside of the room of what is going on oh. or which scene did make you provoke you any disturbance and uh, and then they would take the the results and analyze them and the differences were huge the version that he did with all these noises and ultrasounds and everything were very disturbing to people some people were feeling sick some people were feeling noise and you know basically what he explained to me is that your ear your brain cannot understand what the sound is because you, you perceive it but you cannot codify it so your brain connects it to the visual stimulus that you're what you're watching so it enhances the effect of what's going on so a scene that would be normally be okay it's add with that added stimulus makes it even more powerful and it's a trick that surely has been used in the first paranormal activity oh, uh, in which they have all these sounds and i remember back then people were feeling sick were leaving the theater and yeah, i think in, it's borderline legal uh, in some occasions it's considered almost legal because it is used it's it's been seen as a manipulation of the audience that is not healthy so oh. and for a whole feature film he he told me the sound designer, if we should use the same tricks for like a one hour and a half film, our film, it would be almost intolerable. It would be too much. On 10 minutes, you can manage it. But for such a long time in a movie theater, it, it's just too much. Yeah. It didn't, um, uh, Irreversible use a similar technique? <clears throat> well, could be. In in the credits, he, he did that. Um, you know, he, uh, it was an epilepsy warning, but that's a, and also in the credits, he slightly, I, that may be the, um, not irreversible. I, actually, that may be, a thing I thought it was Gaspar. Does. No, I thought it was during the, yeah. the rape. It sounds a lot like him. Yeah. Yeah. The I rape thought, scene, there is a whistle. Yeah, definitely. And, ah. and he was using a low frequency. And yeah. cause I remember people were saying it was making them like physically ill. Yeah. And he was like, 
Yeah. Yeah, well, it should because it's I, an eleven-minute uncut <laughs> rape scene. So, well, I, mission accomplished. That, that I mean, but that is it's interesting because you know we're a fan of like avant-garde film and and horror and these themes kind of like the thing about the genre of horror is it's very emotional and human and it's kind of um, people overcoming horrors, and yet in that moment, it's almost like a director punching you. Would and then you're like, did you just hit me? And he's like, yeah, that's the mm-hmm. point. Like I wanted you to be almost like uh, vomiting because it is a horrible thing. Yeah. And, and now, you know, hearing that and the fact that it might, it's illegal in some places. Don't quote like, me on that. Maybe okay, I, won't. I said, maybe it's just frowned upon. I don't know if it's well, illegal, I mean, but it does feel a little bit clockwork orangish where mm-hmm. you're kind of like, Hey, I'm going to show you some images and, and I'm going to zap you or something. And the next time they come up, maybe you'll, you'll hearken back there mentally. I don't... Well, at the same time, I have to say it's also I see it a bit as a it's a trick. Uh, I suppose that you should be able with your imagery, with your craft as a director, as sound designer, cinematographer. I mean, the whole team, you should be able to provoke these kind of responses without uh, making you making me sick with a with a trick that's just physical. It all goes back to William Castle, man. Oh, get out. No, it's it's actually hearing Maxie say that because he's a documentary filmmaker. Now, again, I have an extensive history and a learned education in documentary. I took a single class in community college. Where's my puke and, bucket? <laughs> yeah, that low vibration is supposed to make yeah. you puke here. Now, I remember we had one guest, and I've talked about this to, at nauseum on this show. So take a shot. But he came in and said... You know, the thing about documentary is every choice you make is a manipulation. And mm-hmm. it's interesting hearing you say that because, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of it. Like if you put a dude in a lab coat and have him talk about, uh, you know, bioengineering, people are going to connect those dots mentally. And yeah. dude, lab coat studies, that's a huge thing. People will, what was that one um, social experiment where they had the dial and they told you you're shocking somebody on the other end? And they had a dude come up and tell you to turn it up, and you would hear like a scream. Am was I it the St- Stanford experiment? They made that, a that one. Was, Stanford, I think, was the prison one. Where yeah, yeah, out. the prison. Yeah, but it's the prisons same and idea. Gods. It's like it's all manipulation. Mm-hmm. And again, you know what? Let me tie this back into why you need to make mockumentaries because we need to wake up people to this shit. And what better way than with Gerber syndrome, where, you know, a close friend who I would never show anything terrible to is like, what the hell is this COVID denier shit? And I'm like, (laughs) it's a well-made fucking horror movie. And Maxie, I mean, uh, I think you might be the perfect guy to make more of these films. So, well, thank you. You have a you have a built in audience here. In fact, I double as a cheerleader and I'll I'll tell everybody about your work. Wow. I'm flattered. Thank you very much. And I think we're out of I time. was yeah. I was recently I had a very enraging experience. I was very enraged. Uh oh, here we go. Um, there was uh, there was this the, uh, festival where uh, that distrib- that shown our I'll Stand By You film uh, last week, and there was this uh, real documentary, real, real, not a mockumentary Uh-oh. called uh, called uh, the the spy. I think it, uh, no, the mole. I think it's a Danish filmmaker. And he made this film about about the North Korea. Uh, there is this uh, basically this uh, this guy who infiltrated the association uh, in North in in Europe about North Korea. I mean, basically to make it short, 
the, this filmmaker in agreement with this guy who infiltrated for real this uh, crew of North Koreans in Europe that were trying to get money to finance their plans in North Korea, they basically created this whole thing, this whole joke. It's on, on the edge of being a mockumentary, you could say, because they hired an actor who pretended to be a billionaire who started meeting this... Uh, North Korean officials in Shanghai and in Europe to basically to prove that North Koreans are basically undercover selling weapons to European organizations, European organizations in Europe uh, that are then sold to terrorists. I mean, the whole scheme of things. Yeah. And there was the screening and they showed this film and there was this guy who's an actor who was very bold guy actor telling how I mean, here, obviously, they risked their lives because they went to Pyongyang and met with these people, and they were basically spies filming these meetings. So, of course, it was dangerous. And to me, it was I was so enraged because they made this whole thing, this whole scheme, and I was expecting that at the end they would say, um, you know, out after these and these experiences, we've collected this and this evidence, which were given to these and these prosecutors, so that something changed. The law was abandoned and people were judged and this didn't happen. It's not going to happen anymore. But it's none of that. It ends like a big joke. It ends like the director of this film shows up in the end and just says, well, yeah, we did it. It was just fun. And uh, and to me, I was so enraged because people in this film, the North Koreans, are probably dead. Because oh, when this yeah. came out, they're going to be punished and somebody is paying for, for this because this happened for you to make a film that has been shown in festivals and going around. And to me, this was very outraging. And I think that in some occasions, it seems that uh, documentary filmmakers don't have this sense of responsibility that you're filming real people and there are consequences when you go and film them and you have to be very careful. And the fact that they're far away in an enclosed country, which you're never going to enter again, maybe for you, it means nothing. But for them, it's life or death situation. And I felt very, very angry about this. And when I raised the question with the director at the Q&A, he was like, well, but, you know, yeah, maybe, but these are, you know, the North Koreans, they're bad anyways. It's, but who are you to say? Who are you to judge? Uh, these people, I mean, they're people. They're doing their job. They're in a system, which, of course, is wrong and everything. But so, yeah, I wanted to share this uh, experience that I felt. Beautiful. I love that. And honestly, because I don't think I've ever thought that way before when hearing you mention that it makes me think back to like Sasha Baron Cohen with mm -hmm. all of, uh, was it Bruno who went to like the middle East and was interviewing terrorists, and he was like, he called them like dirty Santa Claus and stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a different thing, but like definitely in a communist regime, a lot of those countries, they don't end up working because you can never be, you can never deliver bad news. And they always mm -hmm. shoot the messenger and then you make a mockumentary and they're in it. And it's like, it's showing all over the world. Yeah. Those people, they may not be dead, but they're definitely being tortured. Yeah. Yeah. God, how, how do you turn, <laughs> leave it to Maxi to turn a movie. I looked up the mole while he was talking. It looks so goofy. And yet, you know, you, you package it in this way where now I'm like, God, actually, did you watch the mole? No, this oh, film. Yeah, yeah, I was at the screening. Yeah, I know you were, but I, I. It looks like a film that Clark had covered on this show before. Oh, I am I looking at the wrong mole? What year did this? I'm looking at 2020. <laughs> Maxi, look up. Uh, 
the are you on a computer right now? Look up the yeah. mole agent from 2020. I'm a fucking idiot. The mole undercover North Korea. Ah, uh, no, no. The, the, the one you're looking at was Oscar nominated. <laughs> it has nothing to do with this. It's South. south uh... Oksana, can you pull that up for whatever kind of video component we do? Yeah, no, it's called The Mole Undercover in North Korea. Yeah, I, I found it very easily. I because, know. Yeah. I, I was yeah. mostly listening and I pull up the first thing on IMDb, The Mole. That image. Uh, that's what I was picturing the whole time. He's but like that. but it, it would have been fun to have the old guy with, uh, with the lens. It he wouldn't have made fun. it out. If that guy had a little camera in his lapel, that guy's not <laughs> making it back. Yeah. yeah. Maxi, man, I love you. And I, Thank you. the Gerber Syndrome is such a powerful film. And I think the horror community, uh, for anybody listening out there, the, the minute it's available, I will... I will make sure y'all can see it. And I know in uh, the UK, we've had people reach out and said it's available streaming. I believe it's on. It might be under, yeah. And they were able to find it, but do yourself a favor and watch this film from 2011. That's more poignant now than it ever was. And it, it repackages zombies in a completely different light. And, um, I don't know. I think, uh, well, y'all be a better horror fan for having seen it. And share it. Cool. And uh, Maxi, and when your new film comes out and you got a little bit, please touch base with us again. Uh, we'd love to promote it and check it out. Thank you. Good and pleasure. Again, so sorry for making you wait an extra hour. <laughs> I, I nor- Normally, this is the part where I try to milk as much time until Clark literally pulls the plug on the Ethernet cable. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, I, I'm carrying so much guilt right now. I just, I, yeah. It's okay. I wasn't standing out in the rain waiting. So it's okay. <laughs> Maxi, man, I love you. Thank you so much for taking the Thank time. Thank you. It's a, it was a real pleasure.